Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, where we find ourselves. We're going to have to boogie a little bit in the message now, make up a little time, but it's all good. It's getting warm in here already, huh? Second service is going to be nasty hot. Oh, if you haven't been to second service lately, it is ridiculously hot. I am sopping wet at the end of it. Oh, man. It'll be exciting when we get into the sanctuary next month, and we'll have a little air flowing in there. Obvious lack of in here. Mark chapter 13, we're going to make up a little bit of time, but it's okay because this is a second part of a two-part series. Remember last week we started talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you will remember from last week that there is a tremendous emphasis in the Bible on the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, I told you that uh, next to salvation, it is the most often mentioned theme in the Bible. And so if frequency of mention is any indicator, it may be that the second coming of Jesus Christ is the second most important teaching in the entirety of Scripture. I shared with you last week that in the Old Testament, there are 1,845 references to the second coming. In the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming. The Old Testament has an 8 to 1 ratio with regards to second coming and first coming. Excuse me. That is to say, the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned eight times more frequently in the Old Testament than the first coming was. In the New Testament, one out of every 12 verses has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it's fitting that we would devote two weeks to this subject. Last week we gave kind of a broad overview, and you'll remember that I had committed in the beginning of the lesson to sticking to the text in Mark, and then we read it, and then we took off, and we never came back, though I kept you with your sweaty little finger there for a full hour. So today we're going to stick in Mark, I promise you. And uh, we'll just refresh our memory of Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 19. We studied that a couple weeks ago. It's about the tribulation period. Verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never shall. And then verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. But take hold, behold, I have told you everything in advance." But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest ends of the earth to the farthest ends of the heaven. And so the second coming of Jesus Christ shown to us very clearly in the chapter before us. 
Last week we mentioned and talked about quite extensively the necessity of the second coming of Jesus Christ. You'll remember that I shared with you that in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, there are basically two veins of prophecy running through the Old Testament about the Messiah. One vein speaking that he would be the suffering servant of Yahweh, spoken of frequently in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere. The Messiah would come and he would suffer. We saw that explicitly in passages last week. But the second vein was that Messiah would come, he would be a conquering king, he would deliver the kingdom to Israel, and Israel would be delivered and would rule and reign with Messiah. Two veins of prophecy throughout the Old Testament. The first vein has been completely and utterly fulfilled. The first vein was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. About 320 prophecies speaking of his first coming. Notice that all the prophecies about Jesus' first coming were fulfilled literally. Literally. That is what the Bible said it meant when it said that he would be born in Bethlehem and grow up in Nazareth. That's exactly what happened. When it gave specifics about his life, such as the cross, uh, his robe being... uh, 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 Lots being cast for his robe, uh, the sour wine being given to him. All these details that we see were fulfilled literally. So it is only logical to conclude that the rest of the prophecies about the second coming yet to be fulfilled will also be filled, fulfilled literally and completely. And so as sure as we are that Jesus came one time, we are eight times more sure that he will come again. It is a historical fact that he came. It is a biblical fact that he will come once again. We highlighted last week that Jesus must come again or else he must be rejected as Messiah. When you speak to a Jew about Jesus being the Messiah, you'll say to them, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And they will say to you quite plainly, well, he never fulfilled the requirements of Messiah. There's no reason for us to even begin considering Jesus as the Messiah when he didn't even begin to fulfill what Messiah would do. Now, when they say that, they're looking primarily toward that second vein of Bible prophecy, talking about the Messiah being the conquering king who would deliver Israel and who would deliver the kingdom to Israel. And they say, Jesus never did any of that. He's not ruling or reigning over the world. He's not ruling on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He has not liberated Israel. And so we would never consider him to be the Messiah. They failed to notice that there are two comings of one Messiah. Last week we mentioned that some ancient rabbis thought there were two Messiahs. Others were perplexed at how one Messiah could both suffer and conquer. And other ancient rabbis did believe that there would be two comings. And we look there, or I mentioned to you the Dead Sea Scrolls and the ASEAN community, that community that was living in the area of Qumran, and we could study the Dead Sea Scrolls and see that they clearly believed in two messiahs, one that would, the one that would suffer and the one that would conquer. I'm sorry, not two messiahs, forgive me. Thank you for someone giving me a funny look. Uh, One messiah, two comings, that was believed in by those Jews, the ASEAN community. And so for Jesus to be the Messiah, he must come again. We know that he will because he fulfilled the prophecies of the first coming, literally. And so Mark chapter 13, verse 26 says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. Jesus himself here declared that he would come again. 
It's not as though when he was defeated upon the cross, the church made up the story. Oh, gee whiz, that didn't go the way we thought it would go. Uh, Let's say that he'll come back. They got that from Jesus himself. He said that there would be a future time where they would see the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, which is a messianic title from Daniel. They would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds and with great glory. And so we would expect him to come that way literally. Do you remember at the ascension of Jesus Christ that we read in the accounts that the disciples were looking up and the angels appeared and said, what are you doing looking into heaven? Stop looking into heaven. And the same way that he went, he will come. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, I'm going, and if I go, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will return. He said he was leaving. He left literally, so he will return literally. So there is the necessity of the second coming. Without believing in the doctrine of the second coming, you do not have Christianity. Every orthodox, non-heretical creed within Christianity, every uh, church doctrinal statement includes in it the second coming of Jesus Christ. We disagree on the timing, we disagree on some of the events, and we disagree on some of the outcome. But the church universal agrees that he is coming again. Now, with regards to the timing of the second coming, it says explicitly in verse 24 that it will be after the tribulation. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And so, last week we read Revelation chapter 19. We saw there Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation period during the battle of Armageddon. We saw there that the Antichrist foolishly turned his forces against the Messiah who was coming. And yet, without a word, Jesus conquered him. So it ends the tribulation period. It's during the battle of Armageddon, as we saw last week in Revelation 19 and Zechariah 14. And it is just before, or it heralds, or it begins the millennial kingdom. We'll look at some of the characteristics of the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20 in a few minutes. Last summer, I did a message here at our Tuesday night series on the millennial kingdom. You could find it. Go to the website, search for prophecy, and you'll hear a whole teaching about the millennial kingdom. It's going to be glorious. You know that the Bible teaches that David will be resurrected. King David will be resurrected. He will be in Jerusalem. What will he be doing? I don't know, but my secret hope is he'll be the worship leader in the millennial kingdom worship. We're told in Zechariah chapter 14 that all the nations of the earth will be invited to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was when the Jews commemorated that event where uh, uh, having been brought out of Egypt, they were protected in the desert by the Lord and delivered into the Holy Land. To this day, Jews celebrate, observant Jews celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths and they make little tents in their yards and they leave the uh, ceiling open and they sleep out there with their family and they look up at the stars reminding them of the sovereignty and the provision of God that they have been brought out of the wilderness into the promised land. Messiah will call all the nations to celebrate that feast in the millennial kingdom during the thousand year reign. We're told there that people don't have to come and worship Messiah, who is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. But we're told about Egypt. And it says in Zechariah chapter 14, the last five verses, that Egypt refuses to come during the millennial kingdom and worship in Zion. And so the Lord causes no rain to fall upon the land of Egypt. There's a biblical principle for you and I. 
We gather here together on Sundays and the Spirit of God invites us into the worship of God. That's why we worship before as we want to just prepare our hearts and praising for the Lord. That's why we worship after the message because the Word of God stirs our hearts toward the worship of God. And the Spirit of God is wanting to place upon us the mantle of praise. We come in here all messed up, so to speak, with funky clothes on. Not the literal clothes you're wearing, but just all the junk from the week. And all the heartbreak and the fights and the stupid things we said and the things we didn't do and just all this burden. And the Lord says, I just want to take those things off and I just want to put upon you the mantle of praise. The burden that is light. The yoke that is easy. And just come in here and celebrate the Lord. You don't have to do it. You know what I mean? We don't have worship, uh, worship cops that walk down the aisle and if you're not worshiping, psh, slap you with something. Hey, get those hands up. Psh. Hey, get that mouth open. Bam. Sometimes I wish we did, but we don't. You're invited to worship the Lord. You don't have to, but there is a principle throughout Scripture. We see it not only in Zechariah 14, but in 2 Samuel 6, that those who choose not to worship will have spiritually dry lives. Worship looks many ways. Don't misunderstand me. Worship is not only singing songs congregationally, but that is an aspect of praise and worship that we get to do together. And it'll be the same thing in the millennial kingdom. Jesus will invite the nations up together congregationally to worship. And we're told explicitly that David is resurrected. And my hunch will be that he will be the worship leader in the millennial kingdom. We'll miss Dominic, but is David. It'll be cool. <laughs> the next thing that we see and we want to make very clear about, and we spoke about extensively last week, is the location of the second coming. The location of the second coming. I have there is a reference Revelation 14. That's an error. I'm sorry. It's Zechariah 14. You'll remember last week in Zechariah 14, we saw that when Messiah comes, he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And you'll remember that the Mount of Olives then splits in two. It splits in two and half of it moves toward the north and half moves to the south. I shared with you that on uh, July uh, 11th, 1927, they discovered a fault line running under the Mount of Olives from east to west. And remember, we talked about last week, God doesn't have to have a fault line there, but he's throwing us that little prophetic bone, saying, I told you the mountain would split in half. Look, I'm warning you, here's a little fault line. And of course, then he will walk down the Kidron Valley, as he did at the first coming, up into the Temple Mount. And what I failed to share with you last week, shared at second service, but not first service, was you'll remember that I showed you the picture of the eastern gate, where Messiah entered onto the Temple Mount at his first coming, where he will enter the second coming. And I showed you that uh, there were the graves placed out there uh, by the Ottoman emperor in 1541. He put those graves out there, believing Messiah to be a man and a Jewish man, that he wouldn't desecrate himself by walking across the graves. But there has been in the years past graffiti upon that sealed up gate. And that graffiti says, come Messiah, Israel awaits you. Unbelievable. It's wonderful. So when he comes, Messiah comes to Israel. He came to Israel the first time. He's coming to Israel again. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that the gospel is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Jesus said that he was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. When he sent his disciples out on their first missionary's trip, he said, go to first to the children of Israel, go first to the Jews. 
Now, it's unbelievable to me today that a large segment of the church, in fact, the majority of the church in America, teaches that God is done with Israel and that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. It's absolutely nonsensical because of the specific promises that were made to Israel concerning their returning to the land. Oftentimes when we study the Bible together, we'll see some place where the Lord repeats himself maybe two or maybe three times. And I'll say to you, now listen, the Lord is repeating himself here in Scripture. This must be something very important. But did you know about the regathering of Israel to the land that there are 98 passages in the Bible concerning it? How serious is God about fulfilling that promise that he made to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and then through Jacob? He's very serious about it. He's going to keep that word. And so it makes no sense today that the church would believe that they have somehow replaced Israel in God's plan. Uh, Do you know where else we find that teaching? We find that teaching in the Quran. Muhammad in the Quran confesses that the Jews are the chosen people of God. He says that explicitly, that God chose the Jews. But he expresses there, as much of the church does today, that the Jews messed up, that they made a mistake, that they kind of missed some things. And so then God chose the Christians. And much of the church in America today would say, hooray and amen. Wow, Muhammad, he had that right. But then Muhammad goes on to say the Christians mess up messed up, and God chose Islam to be the one true religion, and he chose the Muslims to give the land in Israel to. Now, if you were a Muslim living after the 5th and 6th century, realize that Islam as a religion came about several hundred years after the Bible was completely finished, But if you are living in the Middle East or in what was then called Palestine, now called Israel, biblically called Israel, that land, you would think Muhammad was absolutely right. Because you would look in history and you would say, well, Israel was in the land, and then they were conquered by the Romans and removed from the lands, and then the Roman uh, Empire became a Christian empire, and under the Byzantines, they controlled Israel, and so God there gave it to the Christians, but after that, it was primarily Islam that came and conquered that land and had some power in that land or a show of force of really ruling that land for hundreds of years. So for those in the church that believe that God is done with Israel, They line themselves up with the theology of the Quran. They don't go so far as to say God would then transfer his promises to Islam, but it is the same mindset. It is the exact same mindset that Muhammad had. It is a mindset that says God will break his covenant at any time. And yet we find in the Bible that the world functions on covenant. We read in the book of Jeremiah that God has a covenant with the moon and the sun. And he says explicitly that if that covenant ceases to exist, then Israel will cease to be a nation before me for forever. The whole world functions on covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. If you believe that God would break that covenant, then you have no basis to believe in the continuing of your salvation whatsoever. Now these last few points point to us and illustrate for us who Jesus is talking about in verse 20. It says, unless the Lord had shortened those days, that is the days of the tribulation, no life would have been saved. You'll remember that we read in our study of the tribulation a few weeks ago 
that at least 50%, explicitly at least 50% of the population of the earth perishes in the tribulation period. We read in uh, Zechariah chapter 13 that two-thirds of the Jews in the land perish in the tribulation period. And so Jesus here says about the tribulation, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, what does it mean that he shortened? We've already seen several places in the Bible, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 12, the book of Revelation, and elsewhere, that the tribulation period is seven years long. Does this then mean that it's going to be something less than seven years? That Jesus is going to somehow come back sooner than the appointed time? Not at all. Then Bible prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled literally. He is simply saying that the seven-year time limit is the wrath of God being cut short. It is the tribulation being cut short. He comes back at the end, cuts it short from what it would have been if it ran its course with the wrath of God and Satan warring upon Israel, warring upon Christians, and the Antichrist ruling and reigning. That would have been utter destruction for all of humanity, but Jesus Christ comes back. He puts a stop to it for the sake of the elect. Now, who is the elect? In our Christian minds, we hear elect and we immediately think, that's us. That's the church. We are the elect. We read that uh, in First uh, Peter chapter 1, or we read it in Ephesians chapter 1. We read it all over the place. But realize here that the term elect has never been applied to the church thus far in the Bible that it has always referred to God's choosing of Israel. Remember again, everything that we saw in the previous verses, uh, verse 14 about the abomination of desolation, uh, verse 14 about them uh, fleeing to Judea when it happens, about them not wanting it to happen on the Sabbath, so on and so forth through Matthew 24. Everything points to a Jewish context. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's talking to the Jews here. And remember, explicitly they asked him about the destruction of the temple. And so because the term elect has never been applied to the church yet in the Bible, and he's talking to these Jews, and he's talking about the tribulation period that has everything to do with the Jews, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 37, we conclude that the elect here is Israel. Now remember, I told you the beginning of this point was that when Messiah returns, he returns to Israel. It is for the sake of Israel that he comes at the end of that seven-year period. He doesn't need to come again for Christians. Understand that. The hope of the Christian is eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. The hope of the nation of Israel is the establishment of the kingdom in the promised land of Israel. Jesus doesn't need to come a second time for you and I we will have already experienced the rapture of the church no matter where you place it. Beginning of the tribulation, middle of the tribulation, or at the end just before the second coming. No matter where you place it, everyone knows that there is a rapture. The church is already taken up to heaven. There's no reason for the Lord to come again for you and I. doesn't have to. The sake of the elect. He comes for Israel to fulfill the promises to the nation of Israel for his own glory. Not for the glory of Israel, not for their sake. We'll read in Jeremiah in a minute and in Ezekiel 20 that he does it for his own name and for his own glory. Uh, it may also be, as some competent scholars say, that the elect here uh, not only includes Israel, but those who are saved during the tribulation period. And that could make sense. That's the position of John MacArthur. 
And we saw as we studied the tribulation that there is a tremendous multitude of people who are saved at that time. And so the place of the second coming, Israel, and the nature of the second coming. Look again in verse 24. In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The nature of the second coming is that it is a worldwide event that everybody witnesses. Important for you to know because there are some cults today in our town that say the second coming of Jesus Christ already took place. He's here. We just don't know it. We just don't understand it. There are other religions that say Jesus already came back the second time. Impossible. Jesus himself said that it will be a worldwide event accompanied by cataclysmic events or happenings in the sky. And he says in Matthew 24, verse 27, the parallel account, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be obvious. Nobody will miss it. There will be no mistaking when Messiah comes the first time. And what that will do is it will put an end to speculation forever. Because remember, we talked about that the tribulation period is characterized by deception. That there will be an abundance of false messiahs, false prophets. In fact, the Antichrist himself will set himself up in the temple of God, demanding to be worshipped as God, and the false prophet will say, worship the image of the beast. And when the second coming comes, it will put an end to any speculation. I shared a few weeks ago that um, one survey was done by a university in America and that they found that there were several thousand messiahs functioning in America today. That there were several thousand people that called themselves Messiah. This will put an end to all the speculation. Verse 21 says, Before the second coming, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Messiah, or behold, here, or there he is, don't believe them. False Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. And you'll remember that it is the elect, it is Israel, that the Antichrist seeks to lead astray with that false treaty that we spoke of in Daniel chapter 9. It puts an end to speculation, and it will put an end once and for all to false religions. To false religions. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. It's growing faster than the rate of the church or any segment thereof. Do you know that Islam teaches that God has no son? It's amazing to me. It's one of the most horrendous and evil misconceptions and deceptions of the world that the God of Islam is the same God of the Jews and the Christians. You hear people say this all the time. You hear people speak of the, great, the three great monotheistic religions and the Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all worship the same God. That is a logical impossibility. I invite you to read the Quran for yourself and you will see there that it says God has no son. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In fact, that Dome of the Rock that I showed you a picture of a few weeks ago in our study, that golden thing that's on the Temple Mount that we'll see there will stand right at the base of it when we go to Israel in December. You could look up, and if you were able to read Arabic, you would see over the doorway written underneath the Golden Dome, 
God has no son, nor is he begotten. How can you say that's the same God as the Bible? The Quran also denies that Jesus Christ died upon the cross. Our salvation is based upon the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It can't possibly be the same God unless he is schizophrenic. Can't be the same God unless he has multiple personalities. It's a deception. They're lies. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. And the Quran says that God chose the Jews, but now he's done with the Jews. He chose the Christians, but he's done with the Christians, and he has chosen Islam. And that deception will continue until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that when Jesus Christ returns, he will return to the Temple Mount, and he will not enter the Al-Aqsa Mosque. He will not enter the Dome of the Rock. He will establish the Temple of the Messiah according to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47. It says that he comes with great power and with great glory, uh, quoting Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking into the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, that is where Jesus Christ got that phraseology for himself, was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that is the father, and was presented before him. And it says in the next verse that the kingdom was given to him. So at the second coming, he comes in power and in glory in contrast to his first coming. How did Jesus come in the first coming? Well, gee whiz, first of all, he was born to a woman. That's God humbling himself. Not only was he born to a woman, but he was born in a manger. Not only was he born in a manger, but he grew up in Nazareth. And the people used to say at that time, nothing good comes from Nazareth. It's like someone, no, never mind. (laughs) Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Not only that, but when he was presented to the nation of Israel as the Messiah at the triumphal entry, it says that he came seated upon a donkey. We know there that he fulfilled Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is one of those uh, scriptures that perplexed the rabbis of ancient times because they saw their Messiah comes humbly. Messiah comes on a donkey. We're expecting Messiah to come according to Daniel chapter 7 in the clouds and with glory, not upon a donkey. You see, once again, they miss the first and the second coming. Same Messiah, two different comings. And so in the centuries after the birth of the church, uh, the Jews began to collect as the temple was destroyed and there was no longer... um, Judaism that was based upon the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood, it turned then to rabbinic Judaism. Judaism based on the teachings of the rabbis. And instead of sacrifices, they would atone through their sins with prayers and with good deeds. The rabbis begin to write and they begin to codify their beliefs of rabbinic Judaism. It was collected into something called the Talmud and the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish writings. And it says in a portion thereof, in the section called Sanhedrin, 98, the first part of 98, it says this. If they, meaning Israel, deserve it, meaning the coming of the Messiah, he will come with the clouds of heaven. If they do not deserve it, then he will come on a donkey. 
A few hundred years after the first coming of Jesus Christ, the popular belief in Judaism was if we deserve it, the Messiah will definitely come with the clouds. If we don't, he will come on a donkey. Missed it by that much. Jesus came on a donkey a few hundred years earlier. Now, the second time he comes, he will come with the clouds of heaven. And we read in Revelation chapter 19 that he comes upon a white horse, not upon a donkey, but in the clouds, upon the white horse as the conquering king. And this time, Israel will be ready. Remember that in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, it is a time of Israel's refining. And that gives us, as we alluded to a few minutes ago, the purpose of the second coming. It is the restoring of the kingdom to Israel. Remember in Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father. He went on to elaborate later that the promise of the Father was when the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power to be his witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. But when he said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise, they immediately thought that the promise was the restoration of the kingdom. And so they said to him, and so when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And what he did not say to them was, hey, no, the kingdom's been ripped from Israel. It's now given to the church. God is done with Israel. He didn't say that. He said to them simply, it's not for you to know the time. It's going to happen, but it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which a father has fixed by his own authority. And so Jesus said there that the kingdom would be restored to Israel, and we see that that happens at the second coming. At the second coming, there is the regathering and the regeneration of Israel. Now I want you to pay attention now. There is the regathering and the regeneration of Israel. Look at the regathering in verse 27. Our last verse from Mark for today. Verse 27. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. This is the second regathering of Israel into the land. The first regathering began to take place at the close of the uh, 19th century, at the close of the 1800s with the birth of Zionism. Zionism has been primarily a secular movement, though it has been encouraged and spurred on and inspired by biblical ideas. It is primarily a secular movement of Jews returning to the homeland. It began at the end of the 1800s. It obviously got a real shot in the arm in May 14th, midnight 1948, when Israel became a nation again and the floodgates were opened up. And in the last century, some 600 million Jews, or I'm sorry, some 6 million Jews have come back into the land of Israel. That was the first regathering promised in the Bible. The first regathering is to the land in unbelief. In other words, it is primarily a secular movement, and it's before the tribulation period. We know that it's to the land because God promised that he would restore them to that land. We know that it is in unbelief for two reasons. Romans chapter 11 verse 25 says that there is a partial hardening that has happened to Israel until the times of the Gentiles is completed. So we know that Israel is kept in unbelief. A partial hardening has happened. 
And we also know that they must be regathered in the land in unbelief because according to Zechariah 12.10, when Messiah comes again, they will recognize him whom they have pierced. In fact, it says explicitly, God speaking in the first person, they will recognize me whom they have pierced and they will mourn over him. Zechariah 12.10. And it has to be before the tribulation because we know from our study of the temple a few weeks ago that there has to be a temple standing during the tribulation period. So we have been witnessing the fulfillment of biblical prophecy over the last hundred years as hundreds of thousands of Jews are returning to the land. But 90% of all Jews in Israel today are secular, non-believing. They're not concerned about the Tanakh, the Old Testament, or the Torah, the first five books, or the temple, or any of these things. Most of them are just concerned with national Israel. This second regathering that we see mentioned in verse 27, contrast that to the first, is a regathering to the Lord in belief and before the millennial kingdom. So we have already witnessed a gathering to the land in unbelief before the tribulation. At the second coming, he will call forth the Jews from the ends of the earth to establish a millennial kingdom. It'll be a gathering to the Lord in belief. Now they recognize the Messiah, now that he comes on the clouds with great power and glory and before the millennial kingdom. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. I just want you to see, I want you to have right in front of you the promise of the return from the land that explicitly says that it has to do with the tribulation period. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 30. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now, that promise was made initially for the return from the captivity in Babylon. But that is not the ultimate fulfillment in Bible prophecy, there is the idea of foreshadowing. Remember at Passover, when um, Israel was told to slaughter the lamb at their door and then to put some blood on the lintels of the door above and on the sides and how that was a foreshadow of the cross prophetically. There is also the idea of foreshortening. Foreshortening, not foreshadowing. That an event is prophesied that has its ultimate fulfillment later, but we see a smaller fulfillment of it happening at that time. For example, the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist will not be the first abomination of desolation. Read Daniel chapter 11, and we see there that historically speaking, Antiochus Epiphanes also marched into the temple, slaughtered a pig on the altar, and spattered the blood in the Holy of Holies. It's prophesied there, and it's called the abomination of desolation. But then Jesus said that there would be another one because he came after Antiochus Epiphanes and said, when you see. So there's an idea of foreshortening. So he will return them from Babylon, but then the ultimate fulfillment of them being returned internationally 
Remember, our text said that Jesus would gather them from the four corners of the earth. So it can't be fulfilled merely in their return from Babylonian captivity. If it's from the four corners of the earth, it is an international regathering. Verse 4. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. What? Wait a minute, wait a minute. The Lord speaking to his people says, now go around and ask people, can a man give birth to a child? It's like a rhetorical question. Obviously, no. And then he says, then why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? There the Lord is speaking about the tribulation period. Remember, Jesus said it would be a time of tribulation such as has never been or will ever be again in the future. The Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem there, was far outweighed by the destruction uh, that the Romans brought in 70 AD. And that will be far outweighed by the destruction of the tribulation period. Jesus says, or God says here in the Old Testament, that in the tribulation period, it's so bad that men are grabbing their loins and grunting as if they were giving birth. What is it? Verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. There you see what Jesus was talking about when he said there would be a time of distress or tribulation. We see that it has to do with Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, but that he would be saved from it unless those days had been cut short. No life would be saved, but for the sake of the elect Israel. Those days were cut short. Verse 8. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves. Couldn't it have been ultimately fulfilled in the return from Babylonian? Babylonia because it turns out that later on they are occupied by the Romans. This is the second coming. Verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. There it is, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, according to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have the resurrection of Old Testament saints. When Jesus Christ comes, the Old Testament saints are resurrected, and David along with them. It says explicitly, he will raise David up. Verse 10, And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be quiet and at ease. That will only be the case case at the second coming. Israel is in the land right now, but in unbelief and not at ease. They are challenged for their sovereignty and their capital and their safety every single day. Second coming will be quiet and ease for them. And no one shall make them afraid, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. So the purpose of the tribulation period, a large portion thereof, is the refining of Israel, that they might finally turn and recognize the Messiah. They will be restored back to the land. David resurrected. Yeshua, Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning as their king. Look in the next chapter, chapter 31.
Here we have pictured the national restoration of Israel explicitly at the time of the second coming. It says in Jeremiah 31, verse 1, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, those people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. God says the same thing about the church, that he loves us with an everlasting love. If you believe that God is done with Israel, then there's no reason for you to believe that God isn't done with you. Verse 4, again I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The hills of Samaria. The hills of Samaria. Where are the hills of Samaria? Well, if you were to read about the hills in Samaria in the newspaper today, they would call it the West Bank. There's all this hullabaloo. Who owns the West Bank? Everyone's mad at Ariel Sharon because he wants to allow some Jews to withdraw from settlements there and begin to return some of the West Bank or, or give some of the West Bank to the Palestinians. And there's this question, who owns it, the Palestinians or the Jews? Well, the answer is God owns it. He entrusted it to Israel that he might show himself faithful to every generation. And he says here concerning the West Bank that they will plant vineyards on the hills of the West Bank. The planters shall plant them and shall enjoy them. For there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall call out and say, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. And that's that millennial worship we spoke of. So there we see that Israel, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, is restored to the land. And that they are judged according to Ezekiel chapter 20. Read that later on. And that they are regenerated. God says in Ezekiel chapter 20 that he does it for his own sake. So Israel is restored to the land. They are regenerated. They enter into the millennial kingdom. Now what about those people, the small portion of population that survived what happened in the tribulation period in our life at the second coming. It says explicitly in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34, that there is the judgment of the goats and the sheeps. That when Jesus comes at the second coming, not only will he regather Israel to the land, he will judge and regenerate them according to Ezekiel chapter 20. They will enter into the covenant, the new covenant which we've been grafted into according to Romans. But then those Gentiles, non-Jews who are alive at that time, will experience a judgment. And this judgment is whether or not they recognize the Messiah who just claimed with power and glory as the king. We have our chart. You guys can read that for your homework. There's our chart. You see that last arrow coming down. You remember this chart. We look at it almost every week. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we highlighted for you the events on the right. Sheeps and goats, judgment of survivors of the tribulation period. And those who go ahead and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and acknowledge him get to go into the millennial kingdom. Israel's restoration, Christ's reign on earth for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom. Now look on the bottom. This is a good one. Look right there. What does that say? Satan is bound. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's a segment of church, of the church in America, and uh, they believe in amillennialism. It means that there's not a literal thousand-year reign of Christ and that Satan is bound right now. Can anybody testify to the contrary? 
Has he messed with any of you lately, or is it only me? Okay, he can't be bound. Revelation chapter 20. We end here. Go to Revelation 20. You remember last week we saw the second coming in Revelation 19. We read verses 11 through 21. So we saw that he came there, that he defeated the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And now in Revelation chapter 20, it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Is the millennial kingdom going to be good? It's going to be pretty good. Satan's going to be bound. It's going to be wonderful. Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. It says afterwards that he's released for a time. Look down at verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the sea. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Very interesting. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Jesus allows Satan to be released for a time. Satan goes and begins to deceive the nations once again. And even though Jesus is physically ruling and reigning on earth, there are people that are deceived and enticed and led astray and away from following him. And then once again, we see that Jesus defeats Satan and those who would follow after him this time by consuming them with fire from heaven. Why would God do that? Why would he... Why would Jesus rule and reign for a thousand years and then release Satan to deceive the nations once again? Because God will prove for a final time that man is depraved, that man is basically bad, and that God is right. Now he's given them every possible opportunity. He created them and they were placed in the Garden of Eden, and man blew it. He wiped them out with the flood and let them start over again. And man blew it. He brought them into the promised land and said, just dwell in the promised land, cultivate faithfulness. And they blew it. He inaugurated the age of grace, the church age, where he draws us by his loving kindness, according to Romans chapter 3. And man has rejected him and blown it. He will inaugurate the seven-year tribulation period where he will pour out his wrath slowly in the trumpets and in the vials, I'm sorry, in the trumpets and in the bowls, in the seals, the trumpets and the bowls. He pours them out slowly, giving man room to repent. And we read there in Revelation 6 through 18 that men still refuse to repent. So now he will come again in the clouds with great glory and he will show himself and say, Hello! And by nature of the fact that Matthew 25 says there's a judgment of the sheep and the goats, there are people that still say, no, I don't believe it. Oh my gosh. Some believe it and they go into the millennial kingdom in the physical body. You and I will be there in glorified bodies. We don't reproduce at that time. There will be people that survive the tribulation, accept Jesus as Messiah. They go in the millennial kingdom. They begin to reproduce. Over a thousand years, the earth is populated again. And people have to choose once again to choose Jesus Christ or not. 
He's ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. You can see him. You're invited to go up every year and go, <laughs> the king. Wow. David, lead him worship. Listen to him play. <laughs> and there he is on earth. He let Satan loose for a little time, and what do people do? They reject him once again. Came to earth the first time, they reject him. Comes to earth the second time, they will reject him. And so what follows that? Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne. What follows that is the final judgment. When people say God will judge, this is the final judgment. And it is the final judgment. You can read the rest of it later on, because now no mouth can say anything. Every mouth is shut up and God has proven himself to be just and to be faithful and to be true. He says, I gave man every single chance possible throughout history to be forgiven. And up until the end, there were those who chose to go their own way. After that, last couple of verses, Revelation 21. After the millennial kingdom and the great white throne judgment, it says... And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Deal with that if you surf. And, but it might mean there's no separation between peoples. It's kind of a Jewish idiom. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, no crying, no pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write these things down, for these words are faithful and true. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have laid it all out, Lord. You've shown us the beginning from the end. Behold, you have told us everything in advance. Thank you that though this world seems wacky today in some ways, and there's much confusion, that it's very obvious that you will soon set all things right. Thank you that you have a perfect plan that is unfolding. And now, Lord, I just pray that you would allow us to take the macro and apply it to the micro, that we would apply this big plan to our individual lives. That even as you are shown at the end of time to be absolutely faithful and true, that we would honor you as such. That we would believe you for big mountains and obstacles in our lives, big troubles and scary things, that we would believe you to be that same faithful and true God who was, who is, and who is to come. Thank you that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. But God, teach us to be faithful with that which you've called us to at this day and age. In these last days, teach us to be faithful with every gift, every calling, and every promise to live for you. You're faithful and true, and we worship you as such.